Welcome to episode number 14 of In the Word with Mel Bennett, a study of scripture passages from the Word of God. We're so glad you're with us today. My name is Steve Webb. Today, Pastor Bennett is again in the second chapter of the Gospel of John. He'll be talking about the new temple and searching the hearts of people from verses 17 to 22. Let's get our Bibles out and join Pastor Mel Bennett. Once again, a special thank you to Steve Webb, who has been and continues to be such a rich blessing to me in putting these podcasts together. I encourage you, our listeners, to check out the many podcasts that Steve produces. Take advantage of them. Now turn with me to the second chapter of the Gospel of John, and let us begin reading at the 17th verse and continue through verse 22. Once again, that's chapter 2 of Gospel of John, verse 17 through 22. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us, since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build a temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now Jesus had just finished the cleansing of the temple by driving out the sellers of animals, the money changers. It was a certain fact that there would be a reaction to this action on the part of the people. There are two reactions that I want us to consider today. First of all, the disciples. They were reminded of Psalm 69.9, which says, Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. This psalm is a referral to the Messiah. And when the disciples remembered this verse and saw the zeal with which Jesus was feeling, they were more convinced that he was the Messiah. The action of Jesus in cleansing the temple were actions befitting the anointed one of God. Secondly, there was the reaction of the Jews. Now, this was a natural reaction. They demanded what right did Jesus have to take such action, and what was the sign that he was the Messiah, and therefore had the right to do this. Now, here is the point. They acknowledged the action of Jesus to be the action of one who, by this very act, claimed to be the Messiah. It was always expected that when the Messiah came, He would confirm and guarantee his claims by doing amazing and extraordinary things. There had been many false messiahs, and none had been able to fulfill the requirements of a messiah. So the Jews said, By this act of yours, you have publicly claimed to be the messiah. Now show us some wonder which will prove your claim. It is the answer of Jesus that causes the problem. What did Jesus really say, and what did he mean? We must remember that John wrote his explanation of this sometimes later. Look again at verses 21 and 22. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said to them, 
and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. John's was an interpretation that was viewed from the other side of the resurrection. He had seen the risen Christ and was a believer that Jesus had done exactly what he said he would do. A great religious leader once said, No prophecy is that fully understood until after the fulfillment of that prophecy. There can be little doubt that Jesus' words could be misinterpreted and cause the religious leaders of the day to want to put him to death. In fact, the false accusers at his trial used these very words to accuse him. When Stephen was being stoned, they used the same accusations. Notice Acts 6.14 For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, meaning the temple. Two especially important things to remember. First of all, Jesus never said that he would destroy the physical material temple and that he would rebuild it. The fact is, Jesus was looking forward to the end of the temple. He told the Samaritan woman at the well that the day will come when people would worship God not in the mountain, nor in Jerusalem at the temple, but in spirit and in truth. So Jesus was looking for the end of the temple. The cleansing of the temple may well have been a dramatic way of showing that the whole temple worship with its ritual and its sacrifices was irrelevant and could do nothing to lead people to God. That's our second reason. Once again, let me give it to you. The cleansing of the temple may well have been Jesus' dramatic way of showing that the whole temple worship with its ritual and its sacrifices was irrelevant and could do nothing to lead people to God. Jesus came to render the temple worship unnecessary and obsolete. Therefore, he would never rebuild the temple, even though he could. Jesus' coming had put an end to all the man-made, man-arranged ways of worshiping God and put in its place a spiritual worship. He put an end to animal sacrifice and priestly ritual and put in its place a direct approach of our spirit to the Spirit of God. Man no longer needed an elaborate, man-made temple or a ritual of incense and sacrifice offered by man's hand. Jesus was a threat to the religious leaders. What threat he was saying, in essence, this. Your temple worship, your elaborate ritual, your lavish animal sacrifices are at an end because I have come. Praise God. Jesus made a promise. He said to them, I will give you a way to come to God without all this human ritual, etc. I have come to destroy the temple in Jerusalem and to make the whole earth the temple where people can approach and know the presence of the living God. When John saw this action of Jesus, he related it to a prophecy of the resurrection, and he was right. It is the presence of the living risen Christ which makes the whole world into the temple of God. So when John says they remembered, the disciples saw in this a promise of the resurrection. Thirdly, I noticed they believed the scripture. What scripture? Peter used it at Pentecost. Paul used quoted it at Antioch, Acts 2.31 and 13.35. This fulfilled prophecy expressed the confidence of the church in the power of God and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have here a tremendous truth. Our contact with God, our entry into the presence of God, our approach to God is not dependent on anything that human hands can build or that minds devise. In the street, in the home, 
at one's business, on the open road, or in the church, we have our inner temple, the presence of the living, risen Christ, forever with us and everywhere with us. Praise God. Now I want to talk of the one who searches the hearts of men. Read with me verses 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when he, they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. John does not tell us of any signs or wonders that Jesus did at the time of the Passover in Jerusalem. But Jesus, as obvious, did many because there were many who saw them and believed. It appears that John is asking, if many believed, then why didn't Jesus set up his standard and publicly claim to be the Messiah? Jesus knew human nature too well. He knew that there were many who were caught up in the sensationalism of the moment. He knew well that there were many who followed him while he continued to produce miracles, signs, and wonders. But if he began to talk to them about serving God, about self-surrender, self-denial, and the cross, they would have stared at him with a blank face and left him on the spot. It's a great characteristic of Jesus that he did not want the people to follow him unless these followers clearly knew and accepted that which was involved in following him. He refused to cash in on a momentary popularity. If Jesus accepted these people, they would have declared him the Messiah then and there. They expected a material deliverance from Rome and the establishment of an earthly kingdom. Jesus, however, refused to accept followers until they understood what his purpose was. Jesus knew about fickleness, about being carried away by emotion. He knew human nature was to be caught up in the sensationalism of the moment. He did not want or need this kind of follower. He wanted people who were committed to him and who knew what he was all about. When Jesus speaks of miracles, he uses the word signs. The New Testament uses three different words for the wonderful works of God and Jesus. Each of these has something to tell us of what a miracle really is. The first word is teras, T-E-R-A-S. It means an amazing, a staggering, a miraculous thing. It has no moral significance at all. A trick might be a teras. A teras was simply an astonishing happening which left people gasping with surprise. The New Testament never uses this word alone of the works of God or of Jesus. The second word is dunamis. D-U-N-A-M-I-S. It means power. It comes from the word dynamite. It can be used of any kind of unusual and extraordinary power. It can be used of the power of growth or of nature. It can be used of the power of a drug or a man's genius. Now listen, it always has the meaning of an effective power which does things which can be recognized. The last word that is used is senion, S-E-N-E-I-O-N, and it means a sign. And this is John's favorite word. To him, a miracle was not simply an astonishing happening, nor simply a deed of power. It was a sign. It told something of the person which who, who did it. It revealed something of his character. 
It laid bare something of its nature. It was an action through which it was possible better and more fully to see the character of the person who did it. To John, the supreme thing about the miracles of Jesus was that they told us something about who he was, about the character and nature of God. The very fact that Jesus used his power to heal the sick, feed the hungry, comfort the sorrowing, was proof that God cared for the sorrows and needs of people. For John, the miracles of Jesus were a sign of the love of God. In any miracle, there should be three signs. First of all, the wonder which leaves people dazzled, astonished, etc. Secondly, there is a power which is effective, which can deal with and mend a broken body, a deranged mind, a broken heart, a power which can do things. Thirdly, there is the sign which can tell us of the love in the heart of the God who does such things for people. Listen, God is still a God of miracles today. He wants to do things in your life which will dazzle and astonish you. He can still heal your broken body, your broken heart, and even a deranged mind. But his greatest miracle of all is the revelation that he loves you and has a beautiful plan for your life. Why not accept him and his love right now? There's a great song that was written in 1917 by Frederick Martin Lehman. The music was written a little bit later by Claudia Lehman Mason. It's the love of God. Listen to the words. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. When hoary time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call. God's love so sure shall still endure all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. Verse number three says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? Now think of this. And were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that God loves us. We're so thankful that Jesus came to reveal to us the amazing love of God through his miracles, his signs, and his wonders. All were done for people that were in need. And, oh God, we're a needy people today. We live in the midst of a very difficult time, the pandemic that is spreading through the world today. Oh God, deliver us, we pray. Set us free from the bondage of this thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Liberate men and women. May men and women through this thing come to know Jesus Christ. If nothing else, I pray in Jesus' name. I pray right now that you will come into my heart, into the hearts of men and women. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Help us to know the love of God that is rich and pure, that is measureless and strong, and that shall forevermore endure, that the saints and angels sing that song, the love of God. Praise God. Amen. Just as I am, thou oh, what a great prayer for deliverance, Pastor. Thank you. Next week, Pastor will cover the great story of the man who came by night to talk with Jesus. You can write to Pastor Bennett at pastorb at lifespringmedia.com. He loves to get your emails. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Yeah.